Welcome to Sermons from Bailey Road. You are about to hear a sermon given at Bailey Road Baptist Church. Bailey Road is a small Bible-believing church located in North Jackson, Ohio, and is pastored by Pastor Aaron Smith. We are dedicated to serving the Lord through our people and through our teaching. We hope you are enlightened by today's message, and again, welcome to Bailey Road Baptist Church. About being here tonight, that's a blessing. And I hope you did have a productive day and a good day. Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, Mark chapter 10. And we're going to read verse 32 through 45 in just a moment. I was blessed by the Preacher's Fellowship this morning. I, I hope that uh, that's something that you can participate in more often. That was a real blessing. In our area, there's a lot of churches, but we don't have a fellowship like that. And I wish that we did. And uh, maybe the Lord will allow us to have one at some point, but uh, that's just not something we have in our area. And so it's something to be uh, grateful for and to participate in, and I was uh, in- encouraged by the preachers that I got to fellowship with today and was glad to be a part of that. I was blessed by the sermon that I heard today as well. Mark chapter 10, verse 32, we're going to begin reading. We're going to read about an uh, interaction that Jesus had with his disciples. And So let's begin reading verse 32. It says, and they were in the way going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus went before them, and they were amazed i just pause right there. I bet it was amazing to walk with Jesus on a regular basis. I think every day would have just been exciting. You never knew what was going to happen. The miracles that he might perform, the sermons and truths that he might teach. I mean, the confrontations he might get in. I just imagine every day was a day of an amazement. But it says, and as they followed, they were afraid. I bet they were as well that too. I think there is a healthy fear of God when you're around the Lord and you see that surely this is the Son of God. I imagine that they had mixed emotions all the time about what was going on in their interaction with the Lord. It says, And he took again the twelve and began to tell them what things should happen unto him, saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered into the, unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles, and they shall mock him. And shall, shall scourge him, and shall spit upon him, and shall kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. I think that a lot of people think, like these men were thinking, that God exists to do for us whatever we want him to do. And that's not what the Lord exists for, and that's not what prayer is about, but that's what they were kind of using him for in this particular case. And he said unto them, What would ye that I should do for you? And they said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit on thy right hand, and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. But Jesus said unto them, Ye know not what ye ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said unto him, We can. I want to pause there. How many get the idea that uh, what Jesus is talking about and what they're talking about are two different things. Jesus said, are you sure? Can you drink of the cup? Can you be baptized with my baptism? Oh, yeah, yeah, we can do that, we can do that. They were talking about two different things. Jesus said unto them, I imagine with a little bit of a chuckle at their ignorance, you shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and with the baptism that I am bapt- baptized with all shall you be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to him, and saith unto them, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones 
exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever you will be the chiefest shall be the servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and give his life a ransom for many. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you'd help me tonight to communicate a truth from your word that would help us to be what you saved us to be. Help us to learn to be truly great in your sight, great by your definition, and help this church to have a great ministry because they're doing the great things that you taught us to do. I pray that you'd make our time together profitable this evening, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 2001, a man named Jim Collins wrote a best-selling management book entitled Good to Great. I imagine maybe there are some here tonight that have read that book. I've read it. It's a helpful book. A lot of church leaders that I know have read that book, Good to Great. But it was written for uh, secular management is really what it was written for. But but what it did is it showcased 11 different companies that Jim Collins identified as growing from, from just kind of an average company to an amazing company, and he wanted to study and figure out what made that company go from good to great, average to amazing. He wanted to figure that out. It would highlight some companies that you're familiar with. It, it uh, tracked Walgreens. Walgreens was one on his list, and Walgreens seems to be on every corner, everywhere. And it looked at Gillette, the razor company, Pitney Bowes, different companies like that that went from good to great companies. Now, the very first factor he started with is he started with leadership. That makes sense. A lot of times you've maybe heard the uh, quote. I've heard it often repeated by Lee Robertson, the great preacher, or John Maxwell, the great leader, that everything rises and falls on leadership. And I take a little bit of umbrage with that. You've got to have somebody that's following as well. It takes two to tango. But certainly we, we would imagine that he would start with leadership. And he said, if you want to have a great company, not just a good company, a great company, you've got to start with the leader. And he said, you have to have, and I want you to stay with me for a moment because I am going somewhere. You have to have what he called a level five leader. Now, before I explain to you what a level five leader is, I'm not going to go through levels one, two, and three, but I want to define to you what he called a level four leader. Because when he said this is what he when he said level four leader, you would think that that's the leader that you want. He said a level four leader, not a level five leader. A level four leader is here's what he said: an effective leader who catalyzes commitment to and vigorous pursuit of a clear and compelling vision, stimulating higher performance standards. Now you might say, well, this isn't a I thought this was a church service. This isn't a management session. Well, stay, stay with me. Here's what he was saying in simple terms. He was saying you, a level four leader is somebody who's visionary. Well, I've heard that a bunch. I've been to pastor conferences, and they say, hey, you want to be a great pastor? you got to be a great leader. you gotta got to be a visionary. you got to have a vision about what God wants you to do. And, and, and that's, that's interesting to me. I've had a lot of even people, prospective members, ask me, what's your vision for, for this church? It's as if they were saying to me that you've got to know, well, in two years I want us to be this, and in five years I want us to be this, and here's what I see in ten years, this visionary style of leader, but really Jim Collins didn't say that that is the leader that they were looking for. That's a level four leader, somebody who's visionary. He, uh, in his definition, you also see he was talking about strong personality. 
It's amazing how we think a leader ought to be a certain way. You know, uh, there, I was talking to somebody, they were trying to figure out a leadership award, and they, I said, what about this particular person? They said, well, they're too quiet. Oh, you can't be a leader and be quiet? You see, we've got it in our mind that a leader, a real strong leader, uh, this level four is a, somebody that's got a strong A-type personality. I mean, they just uh, take charge. Like When they walk into the room, I mean, they, they just take command and everybody turns their attention to them because they're charismatic in their leadership. They're that kind of person that says, hey, follow me because I know where I'm going. But that's only a level four leader. This is somebody who's... He defines this, determined, a power leader. These are kind of people that we would say, yes, that's the kind of leader our church, our ministry, our, our world needs more people like that. But he said this, according to his research, he said, here's the quote, we were surprised, shocked, really, to discover the type of leadership required for turning a good company into a great one. Compared to high-profile leaders with big personalities who make headlines and become celebrities, the good to great leaders, don't miss this, this is so important to what I'm about to teach from the Bible tonight, are a paradoxal blend of personal humility and professional will. So, okay, well, Pastor, I'm not really following you. What's your point? Here's my point. Jim Collins, in his book, devoted 15,000 hours to research. He studied 6,000 different articles. He generated 2,000 pages of interview transcripts of CEOs. He created 384 million bytes of computer data to come up with a conclusion that Jesus gave in seven Bible verses over 2,000 years ago. It's not about the, the personality and the determination of a leader. It's about somebody who has personal humility and professional will. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is teaching us in this text. Let's turn our attention to what the master teacher taught. In verses 32 and 30 through 34, this is the third time that Jesus is going to teach his disciples of what is going to happen to him, the ultimate end of his ministry. He has been warning them, listen, I'm telling you that the Son of Man is going to be killed, and three days later he's going to raise again. Now the interesting thing is Peter, my, he's my favorite character. Outside of Jesus in the Bible, Peter's my favorite character. I love Peter because Peter is so transparent in the Bible. He's one of those guys, and I can relate to this, that he'll do something good one minute, and the very next minute he'll turn around and do something stupid. Can anybody else relate to that? Man, I can. I, I love Peter. I love what one commentator said about Peter. They said that he had a foot-shaped mouth, but he had a cross-shaped heart. And I can relate to that. I like that about Peter. You know, Jesus is telling him, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be killed, and Peter pulls him aside and says, no, 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 that's not going to happen. Come on, Peter. Jesus is trying to tell them, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to raise again. He's trying to tell them. And this is the third announcement. In the first two, he just told them what. But in this particular announcement, he takes it to another level. Now he starts telling them where it's going to happen and who is going to do this. But the interesting thing, again, is the disciples' reaction was the same reaction that it had been the first two times. They were really not interested in what he was saying. It was a truth that they did not want to face. They did not have the cross on their mind. They had crowns on their mind. And so here Jesus tells them, and it's almost to me as I'm reading it, I know it's kind of a paragraph break, but Jesus is telling them, I'm going to be spit upon, I'm going to be scourged, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to be embarrassed. And the very next verse, James and John are going, hey, we got a favor to ask of you. It's almost like it, it just 
didn't register at all. I mean, something was missing there in the connection of what Jesus was trying to teach them and what they were learning and understanding. Now, I don't want to be too hard on James and John. That's not my intention tonight. In fact, I'd like to praise them for just a moment. They come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, we want you to, uh, you know, give us this request that we have. And what we want to do is we want to aspire to greatness. I mean, that's, that's essentially what they were asking. We want to be elevated to a position of exaltation, of celebrity, of, of, of prominence, to sit on your right hand and your left hand. Now, before we be too hard on them, let's give them some credit. Because there's really nothing wrong with aspiring to greatness. I mean, the truth of the matter is, is I wish more of us, I wish more in myself, I wish we had an aspiration to be great. I mean, think about it tonight. I don't know if we have any educators in the room at, at our church. We have a Christian school, so we have a lot of school teachers that attend our church. We also have several college professors that attend our church. And so we have a lot of educators in, in, in our ministry. And, and the truth of the matter is, is if you were to talk to teachers, teachers would tell you that there are, they could give you many stories of intelligent students who make real, really small efforts to excel in class. Like they have the mental capacity to learn and to be something and to excel and to be great in academics, but because they have no aspiration to be great, they do little with their life. In fact, I would also take it further. I know of a lot of coaches. I've done coaching. I've coached baseball and I've coached basketball and, and, and I, I've, I've played a lot of sports. I, I know that coaches could tell you many stories of talented athletes who could have been great on the court. They could have been great on the field. They could have been great in their area of, of athletics had they worked at it and had some aspiration to be something, but they just didn't have it. In fact, I am a pastor, so I'll take it even another level. As a pastor, I preach to a congregation of people every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, that I look at many of them. I look at many of our teenagers, and I think to myself, there is so much potential in our youth department. There is so much potential with this family. There is so much spiritual potential with these people. They could aspire to be great Christians. They could be it if they cared to, if they wanted to. So instead of being too hard on James and John, I want to praise them for just a moment, that they had something with within their breast that said, I want to be great at something. I think that's a commendable thing. The problem is not wanting to be great. The problem is how we define what greatness is and why we want to be great. That's the issue. And, and so Jesus doesn't, he doesn't rebuke them for wanting to be great. He tries to change their mind about what greatness is. They thought greatness was sitting on the right hand and the left in this position of prominence, this, this opportunity to be recognized and, and to be applauded and to be seen. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. That's not what greatness is. And Jesus begins to teach them what greatness is, and he challenges them on why they really wanted to be great. You see, the truth is tonight, we may not be as open and honest as it, uh, about being great as the disciples were, but 
there's a lot of times we still show that we do not grasp what it means to be a disciple of a crucified Savior who gave his life to be a ransom for many because we, we might not say it like they did. We can sometimes have the same ideology that they did. So I want to point out tonight, I want to point out two elements of greatness. I hope, I hope that you're sitting here tonight and you're saying to yourself, I'd like to be great for the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like to be a good Christian. I'd like to excel in my relationship with God. I'd like to be more spiritually than I am. I hope that that's something that you would say. And if that's the case, then what is it that would make us great? Two elements of greatness. Number one, greatness is willing to suffer. Greatness is willing to suffer. Again, you get the idea in this text that when they start talking, when Jesus says, hey, let me ask you a question. Can you uh, uh, drink of the cup that I drink of? Can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized of? They're talking about two different things. I mentioned, I think, in the Sunday school class that I taught on Sunday, I, I like the, the musical Fiddler on the Roof. I think it's a great classic. It's just very entertaining. It's interesting to me. And uh, there's a scene in that story where the main character, character, Tevye, he's having a conversation with the butcher in town. And the butcher wants to marry Tevye's daughter. But Tevye thinks the butcher wants to buy his cow. And so they're having a conversation, and everything that Tevye is saying, he's speaking about a cow. And everything the butcher is saying, he's speaking about his daughter. And so it becomes very comical because they are talking about two entirely different things. In this particular passage, these guys are not talking about the same thing. Jesus says, first of all, are you able to drink the cup that I drink of? Now, if you're familiar with your Bible, your mind might, might run to what Jesus was talking about. You remember when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's on his knees and he's praying? And it's at that moment where he's under such intense agony that the Bible says that he begins to even sweat drops of blood down his brow. And what does he say in his prayer to his father? He says, oh, father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Well, I think most Bible students and Bible scholars don't think that Jesus was worried about the physical anguish on the cross, but what he was worried about was the fact that he was going to have to experience separation of fellowship from his heavenly Father. And so the cup that Jesus is speaking of really symbolizes inward suffering. So he says to these guys, are you able to drink the cup that I'm, able to drink, that I'm going to be drinking? Are you able to do that? Are you able to experience the inward anguish and suffering that the Savior is going to experience? Are you able to do that? Of course, they weren't thinking the same thing. They just flippantly said, oh, yeah, we, we can do that. Jesus says, well, let me ask you, are you able to be baptized of the baptism that I'm able to be baptized with? Well, Jesus is using that symbolic, what exactly is baptism? And I tell our church, don't ever take it for granted when somebody gets baptized and it's something to rejoice in because what it does is it signifies that somebody's been saved. And it's amazing to me how many people in churches, they don't get excited about their own salvation, let alone somebody else's salvation. And so I like what I heard one country preacher say one time. He said, well, if you can't get excited about yours, at least get excited about mine. And I think that's what baptism does for a church is we get to see somebody who is testifying outwardly 
that they have trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. It doesn't wash away their sins. It doesn't save them. It is just an outward representation of something that has happened inwardly. And so Jesus is saying, hey, fellas, are you able to suffer inwardly, inwardly the way I'm going to be suffering? Are you going to be able to suffer outwardly the way I'm suffer, going to suffer outwardly? And the disciples very carelessly say, we can. And they thought differently. Well, what were they thinking then? Well, think about what a cup is. A cup, in, in their minds, would have been a celebration. I mean, you think about it. When we get together, whether, I mean, it's 4th of July coming up or something like that, when we get together as people, and, and by the way, this is universal. I pastored a church outside of Los Angeles, and we were so multicultural. I'm telling you, I, I've, I've eaten just about all kinds of different ethnic foods, and that's the point I'm trying to make is I don't care where you're from. I don't care if you're from Northeast Ohio or you're from an Asian country, a South American country. I don't care where you're from. All of humanity, and by the way, there's one race, the human race, all of us like to eat. And we get around a table and we eat things and we fellowship. And in their mind, they're thinking, yeah, that's what a cup is. A cup is celebration. Yeah, can I drink the cup? Absolutely. I can do that. Think about what baptism is if you think, think in terms of their mindset. It, uh, baptism, in a lot of ways, is a kind of a, a symbol of renewal in, in some respects. I know when there's a baptism at, at our church, I always encourage people, hey, tell your family, tell your friends, get them to come with you and, and see. And inevitably, almost every time, somebody comes to support their family member, to see them, and they celebrate with them this ceremony that signifies something special in their life. And so these disciples are saying, can we be a part of the celebration that's going on? Yeah, the food and the celebration and the the symbols of renewal. Yeah, we can do all of that. But Jesus is trying to tell them that he knows something they don't know that they're going to suffer. Because he goes on to say, you don't know what you're asking for. You don't know what you're talking about. But I'm telling you, you will, in verse, verse 39, he says, you shall indeed drink of the cup that I shall drink. You're going to know something about inward suffering, and you are going to be baptized with the baptism I've been baptized with. You'll know something about outward suffering as well. Who was he talking to? He was talking to James and John. Do you know something about your Bible? Do you know Bible history? James was the first martyr of the church. James was the first one. He, he lost his head. He knew something about inner anguish, and he knew something about outward suffering. John, the same thing. John knew about inward anguish and outward anguish. John himself was banished to the Isle of Patmos and left to die a martyr's death. He under, the, Jesus was prophesying here, yes, you will experience suffering. But the great point that he's trying to make in these verses is he's talking about his cup and his baptism and he is suggesting to them, my suffering is not accidental. My suffering is intentional. It is a part of God's plan for my life. And don't miss this. He was willing to endure that. He was willing to suffer for the sake of God's will in his life. Now again, I want to be fair. Granted, Jesus' suffering was unlike the suffering of anyone else. But the point is that suffering is a reality of any disciple of Jesus Christ. Do you remember there was a time Jesus said to his disciples, is the follower greater than the master? Oh no, not at all. Not at all. So if the follower is not greater than the master, then if the master suffers and it's part of God's plan, then don't you think it's part of God's plan for you? Don't you think that you're going to suffer as well? 
You know, a lot of times we say this and we pray this. We say, God, I want to be like you. I want to be Christ-like. Well, Jesus was a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. You can't be like the Lord if you don't know about suffering in your life. In fact, Paul, the, probably the greatest Christian in the Bible, I was saying this, this morning, it's very difficult sometimes not to deify Paul and make him some kind of like superhuman, and, and, and he wasn't. He was a man subject to like passions as we are. But, but we know that Paul was well acquainted with sufferings in his life. In, in 2 Corinthians 11, he gives a long list, and he talks about his beatings, his imprisonments, his death threats, his shipwrecks, his robberies, the poverty and the hunger that he experienced. He talks about his suffering. Now, I don't know about you, but I look at the Bible and I think, man, I can't suffer like Jesus. I, I don't know that I would have opportunity to, and, and quite frankly, I don't want it. In fact, I'll never suffer like Paul. I live in the United States of America, probably the most prosperous nation in the history of the world. I mean, you, you understand how blessed we are? I read a book not too, uh, several years ago now, and there was a man who was wanting to, to immigrate here to America. He was from India, and he wanted to immigrate here to America, and his family kept asking him, why do you want to come to America? And he said, because I want to live in a place where the poor people are fat. We are so prosperous that we stand in front of a refrigerator full of food, and we say, there's nothing to eat. We stand in front of a closet full of clothes and say, I don't have anything to wear. Listen, I'm telling you, most of us, all we know about suffering is maybe how to spell it. And I look at what Paul went through, and I would look through what Jesus went through, and I think to myself, man, I, I, I don't know that I could suffer like that. I don't know that I'd have opportunity to. But here's the thing I've learned. I don't have to. God calls me to suffer in the way he wants me to suffer, but that is a part of following him and being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, again, what I'm telling you tonight, listen, don't, please don't miss this. What I'm telling you tonight is contrary to most almost everything that you're going to hear in the Christian message today. Turn on the radio. Listen to the podcasts. Find that internet YouTube preacher. Listen to whoever's on the television. They're not talking about suffering. They're talking about success. They're talking about comfort. They're talking about experiencing the blessings of God. In fact, most Christianity that I recognize and see in the Western world, teaches us that suffering is a problem that you should avoid at all cost. And if you are experiencing suffering, then you should solve that and figure it out and eradicate that from your life. Why is that? I think it could be because we make the same mistake that the disciples in this text made. We look at things from the wrong side. Remember, the disciples were not looking for a cross. They were looking for a crown. You've got to understand, to us, we see things from a different angle than the disciples did. Let's be fair to them. When they looked at a cross, they did not see what we see. You have a cross here. Most churches do have a cross somewhere, it seems like. And aren't you thankful that I want you to notice something that's intentional in a church like this? There's no image of Jesus on the cross. Why? That's not where he is. He's a risen, resurrected Savior. We do not still worship a crucified Savior. We, we worship a risen Savior. And so we see the cross and, and we see victory. 
That's what I see when I see that image there. It was at the cross where I first saw the light. And the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I, I found him. And now I'm happy all the day, right? I mean, that's victory for me. That's not what they saw. When they saw a cross, they saw defeat. And that's what it symbolized. Uh, I, I saw somewhere recently that they estimate that in Jesus' short lifetime, there were probably about 30,000 people that were executed on crosses in the Roman government at that time. They saw defeat. You know what they saw? They, they saw pain and suffering when they looked at that. That's not what we see. I see the exact opposite. When I look at that cross, I don't see pain and suffering. I see hope and healing. And that's where my, my sins were dealt with. When, when they look at the, at the cross, they saw death. That, that's not a symbol to me. In fact, we, we beautify these things and make jewelry out of them. We decorate our homes with them. We wear them on our, our neck or something like that. That, that. That's not what they saw. They saw death. But see, we're looking at it at a different angle. We see life when we look at that. And I think we are making the same mistake that they made about the cross. When we look at our suffering, we look at our trials, we look at our inward anguish, we look at our outward pain. And by the way, by the way, I don't think I clarified this. I'm not talking about the everyday problems of life. I'm talking about the suffering that we experience because of the fact that we're Christians. That's what he's calling us to. You understand, I'm telling you tonight, that if you live for Christ the way you're supposed to, you will suffer in the classroom at some point. If you live for Christ the way you're supposed to, you will suffer in the workplace. There's going to be somebody that's not going to like you intentionally just because of your faith. My senior year, I went to public school in, in Cincinnati. That's where I grew up. I was in a speech class, and uh, uh, my teacher was an unbeliever and was very liberal-minded. She was a good teacher, but she had different ideology. And in my class, I was in speech. I figured I was, I was on fire for the Lord at that time in my life. And I thought, man, I'm just going to, I mean, this is an opportunity. I have a captive audience here. We had to give an instructional speech. So, uh, well, first we started with an informative speech, and I informed them about my life. And a big part of my life was the Lord. So I brought out my Bible. I brought out a gospel track, and I started talking about those things. Then we had to do an instructional speech. I thought, this is a great opportunity. I got people that are sitting here. I have five minutes of uninterrupted time to do an instructional speech. I'm going to do an instructional speech on how to go to heaven. My teacher pulled me up, and she said, you know what? This religious stuff that you're doing is getting old. You need to stop that. Find another topic. My third speech. I had to do a controversial subject. I picked a, trust me, a biblical controversial subject. She gave me a very bad grade. I know that I gave a pretty good speech. She just didn't like what I was saying. You, do, do you understand? That's the guy, and that's so minuscule when you think of what Paul went through or what Jesus endured. It's just an illustration of what I'm talking about. You might be passed over for the promotion that you deserve because of your faith. Your neighbor might hate you just simply because you're a dedicated Christian. Listen, our, our world is trending away from Christianity, not towards it. And God is calling us to suffer for his sake. And I'm afraid that the Christianity, the brand of Christianity that's been brewing in this country for decades now, has taught people that to suffer, oh, then God's mad at you if you're suffering. 
has taught people that suffering is something to be avoided. No, 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 no. Jesus said, take up my cross and take up your cross and follow me. Did you hear that? Take up your cross. I'm not called to suffer like Paul. I'm called to suffer like me in the time of my generation, in the time of, my, of God's, God's planning me and his providence. But I have to be willing to do that. And Jesus is teaching us here that when we suffer for his namesake, we need to look at it, like we were talking about, from the right angle. You say, what do you mean? Let's look at our suffering with eternity in view. That's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for our light affliction. Did you hear that? The things that he went through he called light. How could he call it light? He said this, they're just but for a moment. They work for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory while we look not at the things which are seen but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal but those things which are not seen are eternal. You know what he's saying? He's saying, listen, I'm, when I'm suffering, I'm not looking at it. Oh, poor me, look what's going on right now. No, he's saying God's doing something in my life that goes beyond right here and right now. God's doing something that has eternal value. For that, I'm very glad to suffer. Martin Luther King Jr., the civil rights activist, he knew something about suffering. I've read a couple biographies about him, and there were some great things about his life, some bad things about his life, like most people. But he knew what, what suffering was, and he, he wrote this once. He said, to our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. Now, he was saying that in the context of the civil rights movement. I'd like to say that in the context of my faith. I hope that I would be able to say, I, I want to follow the Lord and love the Lord so much that when suffering because of my faith comes my way, I will meet that with my ability to endure it. It's kind of like saying, bring it on. You want to know what real greatness is? It's not prominence of position. It's knowing how and being willing to suffer. I want you to see secondly what Jesus said in this text. Greatness is willing to serve. I said this in a sermon since I've been with you, but a lot of times worldliness gets preached against and it's taught about maybe personal appearance, fashion, entertainment, those kind of things. But I want you to notice in this text, there's a whole lot of worldliness that's going on. And nothing is mentioned about rock or rap music. Nothing's mentioned about R-rated movies or immodest dress styles. Nothing's said of that. But I want you to see how much, uh, how much worldliness is dealt with in this text. First of all, you see a whole lot of ambition going on here. I mean, they made sure they were in the front of the line. That's what they were doing. Notice something that's kind of comical to me. Look at verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be much pleased with James and John. Much displeased with James and John. Why were they so upset with them? I'll tell you why. They didn't think of it first. Those rascals, they asked to sit on the right hand and the left. I wish I would have thought of that. Man, they asked first. That's not fair. They were, they were upset with them because they didn't think about it. This, this ambition that they displayed was, was really worldly pushing and shoving to get to the front of the line. No, notice what else. They were, they were unbelievably overconfident. Can you drink of the cup? Can you be baptized in my baptism? We can. <laughs> That's worldliness. Didn't Peter demonstrate that? 
I love how Peter stood up one day and he said, I'll tell you what, Jesus. Jesus said, I'll tell you, when I'm I'm betrayed, all of you are going to scatter. Peter stands up and he says, not me. He said, I'll tell you what right now, I, I bet the rest of these, he did, he pointed his friends out, I bet the rest of these guys will do it. I would imagine he might have even elaborated. You know, after all, Matthew, he's a tax collector. You can't trust tax collectors. We all know Judas, there's something going on with him, he's a little two-faced. And Thomas is always questioning and doubting everything. I bet anyone, and you know how overly zealous James and John are, but I'll tell you, old Pete, he's not going to let you down. And Jesus looks at him and says, be quiet. Because before the rooster crows two times a day, you're going you're gonna to de- deny me three times. And you know what Peter was doing? He was being worldly. He was overestimating his own strength and his own worth. And boy, we have a problem with that. That's worldliness. Also, I want you to notice the competitiveness that was going on. Can we sit on the right and the left? Oh, man, look why they, they think of that. There was a lot. You study the life of the disciples. They were competitive people. Now, don't get me wrong, I like good competition. I like competition. At my house, boy, I, listen, I've never let my kids, i got five kids, I've never let my kids win in anything. I'm serious. I've not let them win in anything. And you say, you ever lost? Yeah, but I didn't let them. I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, if I was playing Candyland with my girls, which Candyland is all it is is a stupid game of chance, I was trying to win. Listen, at my house, my kids know I've got a motto, if dad don't win, we play again. I'm going to play until I win because I'm not going out like that. And I, and I understand this, this idea of, of being competitive, you know. But these guys were competitive in all the wrong ways. They, I mean, think about it. In the Last Supper, they're fighting over who gets to sit by Jesus. These are grown men. They're constantly keeping score with one another. In fact, even after Jesus is dead, you remember Peter and John run to the tomb? And, and, and it seems like John and Peter particularly had this rivalry going on. In John's gospel, it's the only one in John's gospel, it records that John got there before Peter did. It's kind of like, there's no significance to knowing that. I mean, maybe Peter was heavier. Maybe he wasn't as good of a runner. I don't know. But John's kind of like, I beat him there. And that's how these guys were. They were worldly. And Jesus sensed an opportunity to go over something again. Guys, guys, listen, if you want to be great, stop it with this stuff. The greatest person among you is somebody who serves. See, in our mind, the way the world, and he even says that, according to the world, the people that are great have this great authority. Jesus says, no, not among my followers. I remember one time I was, when I was pastoring, a lady came up to me. She said, preacher, I want to talk to you. I said, okay. This is the exact, I, I'm telling you, this is a direct quote. This is what she said to me. I want to be in charge of something. It was right then and there I made a policy. Anybody who wants to be in charge of something cannot be in charge of anything. Like, who says that? I want to be in charge of something. <laughs> Okay, you're, you're in charge of being quiet. How about that? You know, I mean, I don't know. It's just crazy to me. But that's kind of our, our mentality. You know, rather than, Jesus is teaching us, rather than leveraging our authority, God's people are supposed to be servants. And effective spiritual leaders are people who demonstrate their heart for people by, by loving them, and by serving them. This isn't, Unique to me, this is something somebody else said, but it's so poignant, it's so good. They said this, how do you know, how do you know 
if you are a servant? And the answer that they gave is by how you react when you're treated like one. Has that ever happened to you? You served, and you were treated like a servant, and there was something inside of you that did not like that? I mentioned to you our, our church has a Christian school. It's not the tail that wags our, our dog, not at all. But sometimes I, I have a CDL, a commercial driver's license, so I drive a bus. And so every once in a while, because I think it's important for me as the pastor to serve, even though we have other people that could do that, I intentionally want to give up one of my evenings and drive the bus for our ball teams and to serve in that area. And you know, there have been times that I've driven the bus and, and I've fueled it up and I've driven it to the place and I've opened the door and I've watched our ball team, Christian kids, get off the bus and have none of them say thank you. Have no consideration that I gave up an evening of relaxation or reading or things that I wanted to do. I, I gave up an opportunity to spend time with my wife and my children so that I could drive them so that they could play a silly game that, quite frankly, they're not even very good at. And have none of them say thanks. And have something well up inside of me like, you bunch of ungrateful little punks. Uh, you, you know, you, do you know who I am? I'm the pastor. I'm driving a bus for you. You see, it's at those moments I'm not being very great, am I? Can I tell you, this, this isn't my church, so I can say this. But as a pastor, there's one thing that really, really irritates me. And this happens to me sometimes. I'll be talking to somebody, having a conversation, and a lot of times as a pastor, they might be sharing something to me that's personal or uh, a prayer request or something that's going on in their life. And I will have somebody over across the way, and this is what they'll do to me. I'm sure this has never happened to you. Pastor, pastor, come here, come here. And I'm going to tell you right now, there's something inside of me, and pro probably not you, you're way too humble and Christ-like for, for this, but something wells up inside of me that says, I'm not a dog. Don't whistle at me. Here, boy. Come on, Bob. And, and sometimes my neck gets stiff and I just continue talking anyway. I don't want you to think less of me. But that's not the right way to act. Jesus said the greatest among you is going to be a minister, is going to serve. Isn't that what Jesus himself did? Right before his crucifixion, he takes a towel and he begins washing people's feet. He just serves. He just does his duty. Just does what he's supposed to do, whether people say thanks or not, whether they recognize or not, whether they applaud or not, whether they appreciate or not. He just serves. You see, the world wants to give awards and have halls of fame and give out medals and pins and ribbons. The truth of the matter is, I believe the Lord will see that and he'll reward it someday. But I think sometimes we even, we even sometimes serve so that people can see how noble they, that we are. I think sometimes we, we run a vacuum so everybody can see. Do you see how I'm serving over here? Jesus is trying to tell these guys, listen, you really want to be great? Learn how to suffer. Be willing to suffer. Be willing to serve. I'll close with this illustration about service. In March of 1995, a company, the New England Pipe, Pipe Cleaning Company, 
was working under the streets of Revere, Massachusetts. Their job was to clean out a 10-inch sewer line. I want to just pause right there. I told you that I have five kids. I have three daughters and two sons. My three daughters share a Jack and Jill bathroom. There's two bedrooms, and they all share the same uh, bathroom. And my daughters have real thick, long hair, all of them. And so every once in a while, they come down, and they don't tell their mother. They tell their father. The bathtub's not draining very well. Well, so it's my job to serve. And I go out into the garage and I take this tool that I have bought from the hardware store and I take a Walmart bag and I go upstairs with that tool and I stick it down the drain and I pull that tool back out and you can imagine the nasty stuff that I'm pulling out of there. In fact, I'm looking at some of your faces right now. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? The sludge and gunk and this huge ball of hair that comes out of that drain. And it's not even my hair. My hair is gray. It's easy to identify, and it's short. So I'm not doing that to this drain. And I pull that out, and I throw this, what looks like a dead rat, into a Walmart bag so that their bathtub can drain. Now, can can I just tell you, back to our illustration, I can't imagine doing that for a living. These men had to clean out a a 10-inch sewer pipe that had clogged under the streets of Revere, Massachusetts. That was their job. And here they are cleaning it out. Now, the workers found many of the usual items that you can imagine that clogged those kind of pipes. But they also discovered many other things as well. During this particular project, and again, this blows my mind, It's documented. They found 61 rings. They found vintage coins, and they even found some silverware. Now, how in the world do you have a fork down there or something? I just, who knows? But the bad news is this. The bad news is that they had to do a very unpleasant job. It was dirty. It was stinky. It wasn't prestigious. It was gross. But at the same time, the good news was, is they were told they were allowed to keep anything they found. And I say this to you, some of you are sitting there thinking, well, (laughs) they can keep it then because I don't want that job. Listen, the point I'm trying to make is, as I've tried to serve and as you've tried to serve, if you've done that, When you get down to where people are and their problems and their issues, sometimes people are messy, and it stinks, and it's no fun. I'm going to tell you, along the way, you find gems and jewels and rewards and lessons and blessings that you would never find any other way. Jesus said, listen, there's nothing wrong, fellas, with wanting to be great. In fact, I hope that in your breast you want to be great for the Lord Jesus Christ. But why do you want to be great? You want to be great because you're noticed, you're applauded, you're appreciated? Nah. Why don't you want to be great because you want to bring glory to the Heavenly Father? What do you think greatness is? Do you think it's position? Do you think it's prominence? Do you think it's recognition? Oh, no, no, no. 
Greatness is being willing to suffer in the will of God for His cause. Greatness is being willing to serve for the benefit of other people. And so I ask you some questions this, this evening as we close. Question number one is just this. Do you desire to be great? Or are you just okay with being okay? I don't know about you, but I'm challenged tonight. I'm challenging myself. I don't want to just be mediocre in my faith. And if there's one one area in my life I want to be really good at, I want to have a good walk with Jesus Christ. Do you at least have a desire in your heart to be great instead of just mediocre? And secondly, do you avoid suffering at all costs? Or do you accept it? Your faith, a lot of times, is just going to bring some suffering along the way. It's part of God's plan. Number three, who are you actively serving? How, How do you react when you're treated like a servant? Let me ask you finally, what have you learned while serving along the way? May the Lord help us.